0: There's a child in his four, and and he craves um, his connection to his father, particularly at this age, as he's starting to step in and realize that the world is more than him. And as he steps into that world, he wants the support of his father holding his hand. And at the same time, his father had a gambling addiction. Yep. And but the beauty of this man is he had it, and out of a commitment to his son, he said, "I'm going to give up that addiction." because I've managed to create some debt. I'm going to work an extra th- day a week and I'm going to pay off that debt and I'm going to nurture and be responsible for that which I've created. And you've got a son who's making a story up that I'm no longer wanted by my father and you've got a father who I love my son enough to move beyond my weaknesses and create a difference.
1: That was Jason Keeble. I'm Rich Bolus, and this is the Dad Mindset Show. In this episode, we explore how to recognize and confront old limiting narratives and identities that reside within our subconscious. These limiting beliefs, often rooted in scarcity, inadequacy, and insecurity, are typically developed during childhood to make sense of challenging situations. However, Jason explains that it is by doing the work to recognize these limiting narratives and then dissolve them. That we can begin to live much more fulfilling lives. Now, before we get into it, if you've ever enjoyed the conversations on this podcast, please could you do me a favor and hit the subscribe button. It helps this podcast more than you know, and the bigger the podcast gets, the bigger the guests will get. With that said, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Jason Keeble. Jason welcome to the show
0: (laughs) thanks Rich thanks for having me
1: I'm really excited to dig into this because when we first met a couple of weeks ago Mm -hmm. the story that you shared was just really touching it really resonated can you just tell it again if you will
0: Sure. Um, would you like me to go back to the very beginning when yes, I was please. first? Okay. So in 1969, I was born, and at that time, there was some um, policies in place to really discourage um, young women who would fallen pregnant to um, keep their babies. So um, my mother was really coerced and forced into giving up her child, and there was no support offered for her to keep it. And um, so when I was born, I was literally removed from my mother at birth. And um, she didn't have the opportunity to touch me either because that could cause her to, um, you know, renegotiate a contract that she'd agreed on because that maternal instinct kicks in. So I got to experience that in my body and also ex- try to make sense of it in the world as I grew up into a young child and then further into a man. And I created stories around that and it's really important to note in this that I was taken up by a beautiful family that offered me all the love in the world. Um, But even though that was available, I kept seeing the world through a lens of I'm not enough and I'm rejected and I'm not worthy and I'm a mistake. So in having that lens, even though there were all these offers of support and love around, It also had a bit of an addictive quality because I couldn't obtain that which I wanted most, which is essentially a huge part of the addictive consciousness, which was just to be held by the simple love of my authentic birth mother. So yeah, I got to experience what I experienced and try to make sense of it and also experience a fair degree of suffering for a long time until I was in my probably early 30s late 20s where I started to break out of that and start to transition into making a, an active change to how I was in the world and now am in the world
1: yeah and what sort of in the late 30s what hmm. well, uh, was the uh, catalyst for that
0: yeah so sorry it was the late 20s when it changed so it was a sort of a classic age that age of you know Jimi Hendrix and um, Jim Morrison it was 28 I think and I'd gone over to Europe I visited some friends, had a good time, come back. I was pretty inspired, and I had this level of sort of anxiety which I'd never felt before, and I went and saw a, a nutritionist or a naturopath, and I was living in North Carlton at the time, and she said, oh, you know, describe your diet on – you know, I wrote it down. She said, oh, are there any, you know, pre-existing conditions in in your bloodline like, you know, cancer or anything like that? And I wrote in that bit – um, I don't know because I'm adopted. And she went through it and she talked to me about diet and other things. And she suggested not so much coffee first thing and perhaps back off on the Panachocal Arts because I'd had a bit of a pre collection with France. I kept trying to keep that alive. And she said, Oh, you know, just on the side, like I know she mentioned something about adoption here. And I said, Yeah, yeah, I, I don't know. Like I, I, I kind of swept it aside because that's what I've been doing for the last 28 years because I had been given a message. A little bit around obligation, responsibility, and a bit tied into shame around, you know, what it would mean to my um, adopted parents if I was essentially, there was a sense of betrayal if I actually went and sought something more than everything they'd given me. I don't think they meant that. And I don't, yeah, I don't think they intended, but there was an energy of that available. And I may have created it, but that was what I was experiencing. So I thought, out of loyalty, if you like, I'm not going to do that. But it was at my cost, essentially so i she said oh have you ever thought about you know inquiring any further about the adoption oh no 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 look i'm fine told the story which i just showed you explanation moved on and walking down this street a couple of days later in carlton and there's this door and i'd taken about 10 steps past it and i literally felt myself literally like in reverse going back and i looked at the door and it said adoption support agency or something like that and I walked in the door and they said, um, Hey, and it's like one of those big terrace houses in Carlton and in, uh, yeah, whatever. And uh, they said, oh, You know, um, welcome. Um, we're here to help people um, and guide people through the adoption. What would the word be? The reconnection. So- reconnection process. Yeah. And I, <laughs> I think I said, Oh, great. Thanks. You know, maybe took a brochure and left. Sure enough, within, you know, a month I was back there and I was engaging in some workshops and stuff like that and, um, and just learning a bit about what it was to... Because the only other adopted person I knew, I knew too, my brother was adopted, um, you know, who wasn't of my blood and he came from another family and he's never chosen to, to follow that up. And there was one other kid at school and that was it. So even at school, I was had a real sense of separateness around, you know, what it is to be here on the earth and, and how we are and our connection to family. So um, when I uh, went through this process, I guess one of the... And I'm quite, you know, conscious of not moving into any sense of victimhood. But one of the things that shocked me actually was they said, oh, a kid who's um born and adopted out straight away without any connection has the same set of... um." same level of PTSD as a returned soldier from two tours. And they said, um, and their fight or flight at three years old is just so overdeveloped because they've had to essentially just become chameleons and make sense. Like that's not really what's necessary, but in their world because they're constantly shifting and pivoting to try and attract that which they don't have, they just like are constantly in fight or flight. And also we have pretty much the same set of um symptoms as someone who's um been um orphaned except we've got a story of rejection yeah so it's a big one and uh, you know it's one i've got to have the good fortune of understanding a lot more about
1: wow and so you started the adoption like uh process of searching yeah. for your uh, natural parents
0: yeah so then what i did is um that was really well facilitated so that was like a bridge um support network and then they hooked us up with the the you know the government agency that actually created us like department of human services or something like that and it was quite rapid and quite quick we got maybe a three-hour level of counseling but i guess the other thing had already done a lot of work and then um when we sat there they explained the process and essentially we We were given the information on a very basic level, but then we had to do the R&D ourself, like do the intrinsic um, investigatory work in order to find out who our parents were by using the electoral roll or anything like that. So that was the process. Um, And in that process, um, the guy um, said to me, um, uh, was it you that had a sibling? And No, was it you that was interested in the sibling? And I said, look, I... I don't think it was. Um, I'm quite aware of my words. I'm pretty sure. What do you mean? And he said to me, "Ah, oh, um, like sibling. Like, if you had a brother and sister, was it you that asked if you had a brother and sister? Would you?" Be? And I said, "Oh no, I'm pretty sure it wasn't." Maybe. <laughs> and he said, "Oh yeah, like, uh, but if you did have a brother and sister, would you be interested?" And I said, "Oh yeah, sure, of course I would. Uh, not even. It wasn't even on my radar. I didn't think it was humanly possible for." an adopted person to have an adopted sister, like have a sister of the same mother, for example, or father. And the chance of having it of the same mother and father, I thought was zero. So, it hadn't even entered my consciousness. And he said, oh, let me just go and check, scratching his head, shoveled through some papers, came back and said, well, here you go. Look, actually, funny you should ask. <laughs> You've got a sister. And she actually did this same process 10 years earlier, which is like a, It's almost like quantum, you know, she's 18 she's doing it. I'm 28 and I'm doing it, but we're really on the same page for the first time. And she said she'd welcome, you know, anyone who inquired. So what they did is then they created the the connection, the facility, and they said, how would you like to do it? And the amazing thing was like, as I was saying to you earlier, they, um, Suzanne is my sister's name, and she um, was born in Melbourne, which I had no idea of. But she was living on an island off Vancouver with no, um, no electricity. And there was like a pet wolf and her girlfriend and her <laughs> on this island where there's no electricity or anything. Like they just cut all their own firewood as like a cabin. And they still, and they still found thing. it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that was great. So then they just supported us for a bit and said, how would you like to catch up? And for both of us in the end, it became pretty quick that letter writing was still, you know, this is 1998, I think, 99. Letter writing was still a really relevant and lovely and nourishing way to to start to communicate because we could keep the letters, we could, like, work through the process with our hand and manifest the word. And, yeah, so that went on for a year. That was beautiful. And then in Christmas, I think it was, you know, 99 or 2000, I can't remember the exact year now. Um, Yes, we spoke. I think it was Christmas Day or the day after for the first time. And, yeah, it was massive and beautiful. And I think we spoke for an hour and we'd crossed so many bridges already in the written word that we've just had to become used to each other's voice
1: wow and when did you actually meet face to face
0: yeah so that was when i um i was uh, i 911 happened and then i remember i was just sitting watching and i just fell into this level of despair and um it was partly to do with what i was seeing in front of me on the screen but it was also to do with like it really struck home to me like the futility of life, essentially, like the changeability of life. And I felt like I'd been treading water and putting the opportunity to meet Suzanne into some distant future which was out of my control. And then I saw how futile that could actually be rather than just get on with it. And I just, out of that maybe one or two days of a really deep depression, actually, the deepest I've ever experienced, quite dark, I I just stood up and said, I don't mind if I die in the process, but from this day forward, I'm going to do anything I can in order to meet my sister as soon as possible. So I just got on with that. And and within three months, I'd just um, organized everything in my life, including, you know, taking responsibility for any commitments I've made and, you know, ma- offered remedy for that and just got on a plane and went over and... S- then and landed, and met that friend that I first met in Paris, and then went over to Glasgow. And then my sister, at that stage, was in another island on the Isle of Mull, which is in the far west of um, of Scotland. And that's where my train went to, this um, furthest-most point in Scotland.
1: So she had moved from Canada yeah. to Scotland at this stage? Yeah,
0: she was working on a whale-watching a <laughs> whale project over there. So she was sitting at a place called Ardnamurchan, which is, I think means the furthest land, looking out and sort of uh, trying to make sense of the world while she counted how many whales were in a bath. So, yeah, she was on her journey as well. So, yeah, I remember on that train there was a point where I just um reached a level of maximum inputs, um, which I'd experienced a couple of times before I r- rode in the head of the river, which was like quite a, a high level rowing event. I had my coach was actually um two time world champion, he ended up being Olympic champion a couple of years after. So had a high level of training, but also just how to balance whatever was going on externally and, and within the mind and just put the task ahead of me m- as the focus regardless yeah. of all that kind of distraction so and vce exams are a bit like that you know you got three hours to express you know you know 300 days of work and you know the chance of that a minimal etc cetera, etc cetera. but it's just about honing in so i was going through all those emotions and i'm just so well i'm on a train and in a minute it's going to stop and after that i'm going to go out a door and then i'm going to walk down the platform and i walked down the platform and there was my sister and We just embraced and hugged each other for the first time, and I felt that feeling of someone with my own DNA, I guess, and own blood. And we walked to a little cute little Scottish bar overlooking the port and uh, had a pint of Guinness, and then she'd hide a little bed room with two single beds and a little chest with the window overlooking the port, for that night. So we didn't have to go anywhere. We weren't under pressure. We didn't have to meet anyone that she knew or anything like that. And we just fell asleep, her on her bed, me on mine. And an hour or so later, I just woke up and I looked across and she was just sleeping in exactly the same position as I always had. And I'd never seen anyone ever sleep in that position before. So that was the connection with my sister. And then I went over and I embraced her life for a while, you know, and one of my great friends, Nick Clements, had come down He was actually doing some traveling around Scotland. So it was really nice because she got to see the mirror of me in him and she had one some of her great friends around and I got to see the mirror of her in them. So it was quite balanced. It was a really lovely relationship and we spent time together maybe five or ten days, I can't really remember, long enough. And then it was time to get on with like, getting into Europe and then just catching up at pivot points whenever we chose. I I knew in my bones that I wasn't going to stay in the UK. So I I actually planned to meet my friend Nick down in Portugal after that. So what I did is I left um, the Isle of Mull and went and had a – I used to do that in these days. I was 30 or so. I went and had a 24-hour kind of nightclub bender type experience (laughs) in Edinburgh on my own. I love travelling on my own. And sort of got in at seven in the morning, grabbed my stuff, jumped on a plane and went down to Portugal and met my mate down there. So that was the start of the European experience. And And
1: then you spent an extensive amount of time in France, didn't you?
0: Yeah. So then I traveled around um, Europe, just working out and pivoting over to see Suze as well, really regularly. And also meeting each other, you know, Europe's like in so many different beautiful places, like heading over to see like... Somewhere in Italy, like Cinque Terre, or going up to Lake Como. It's so good. Yeah, it's beautiful. Jump on
1: a train. Exactly. And take just, your passport. Yeah,
0: yeah, <laughs> exactly. And, you know, I was still there. She'd fly over maybe two hours and I'd take the long, slow train and go, you know, the 24 hours from, say, Spain or Portugal up all the way around the Merid up to there and meet her. And my mum, my um, adoptive mum called Gay, um, she um couldn't resist, so she flew over with her sister <laughs> <laughs> and met us in Paris. Yeah, she and she just insisted that was what happened. So we went <laughs> and met my mum and her sister with me and my blood sister. Wow. So that was really amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah that was super special. And mum, gay, we'll call her my mum. I've never met my bi- biological mum at this stage. Um, so, um, she sighed a real sense of relief. I think she was a bit threatened there for a while. It was very challenging, of course. It must be really hard. Yeah, it was pretty massive for them. Um, my approach was whatever compassion I could hold and a, a high degree of um, honesty. Yeah. And it was a, not an easy path to navigate. But when we run, I find when I run with those terms, um, the best outcome that can prevail prevails yeah yeah yeah. and what when what's in front of us that we've got to resolve is the honest stuff not the not the kind of conflated stuff so yeah that's that's how that was so yeah we all grew a lot from the process for sure but we love each other and we're very much intact now so it's great yeah yeah
1: and then how about your real parents then Mm, my biological Biological parents parents, Yeah. yeah
0: um so um so yeah i stayed in Europe for 10 years which is a whole another journey and then after and I'll just touch on that because in that time I um, met my wife and we chose to have a child we bought a place in um, Chamonix in France we set up a building company Rene was in marketing for uh, an international company Um, we actually had another place down in Biarritz we just had a beautiful life creating and living how we wanted and um, and then um, Renee's call was to come back and get more into her aspect of her career because it was very supportive for me over there but it was much more difficult for her to do what she was doing. So we came back and at the start that was really hard but one of the key opportunities I suppose that presented itself was this chance to meet this man that I had all sorts of stories about which was my biological father. So... My biological mum, when I um, first did the search, I went and um, wrote three letters. Um, well, first one I dropped off. Oh, sorry, first one I posted. Second one I sent registered post and third I actually delivered to the door from memory um, and there was no response. And we're trained as to how to write the letter. So the, red, the letter says something along the lines which are just going to be key triggers, I guess, if for someone who had given birth, is to say, my name's Jason, I'm just writing to you about a family matter regarding September 1969. Um, If you'd like to reach out, here's my contact. Please feel free to call me. I really welcome, you know, the conversation. So that's how it is. And, yeah, when in the guidance that I'd received from the lovely man who asked me if I had a sibling, he said that the... You know, and a lot of these things are data-driven, but they're data-driven as a result of people and their trauma. And he said the likelihood of a woman who's relinquished two children um, to actually be able to face that um, and revisit it is going to be massive and uh, unlikely. Um, So that was a mystery to me. Um, I did get the address right, it turns out, so it wasn't like some sort of false signal. It was actually correct. Um, which I know now. And that's because, yeah, in 2012, I decided to meet my father and I went through the same process. I found out where he was and I wrote the letter. And within, instead of not getting a response within a short amount of time, I got a letter back. And it was absolutely beautiful. It was beautifully written, um, beautifully authored. The handwriting was delightful. And yeah, same thing. I think we may have written one more time and then, you know, we were a bit, I was a bit more resilient then. So we spoke quite quickly and then we were like, well, we should get on with this and meet each other. And, you know, I had all these stories about this guy and I just went and sat next to a man in a park in North Carlton and, you know, just a man who when he was 20 um, had sex with a girl that he loved who um, later on became his wife actually. And, you know, he really put a lot of um, perspective around, you know, what they endured in terms of, you know, being literally told that they were the black sheep if they even attempted to keep that child. And, um, you know, quite naive as well, even though they were country kids, they... um, you didn't realise that sex was sex at the time. Is no it one, t- no would, one told you that. Sort no of one that. told you. It felt pretty good, but that was <laughs> yeah. that kind of been sex because was a sin. So how could it feel? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and quite a high level of Catholicism in the family, and then you know what it was very uh, institutionalised with the church. So my mum and dad, it was actually the nuns who took the notes. The sisters who took the notes that are now available. So I got all those notes from. The interviews from my mother, and then also they were the facilitators. So it was very much almost like a government and church hand-in-hand hand kind of institutionalized thing. And there was very much a story that, you know, the, the young man and the young woman who'd sinned in the eyes of God, the only virtuous thing they could do for repentance was to, um, to um, relinquish their child to God-fearing people. And it was pretty heavy shit. And, you know, the government didn't do anything to change that story. And they did later in 1974 where they started to demythologize all of that and allow, you know, women to be supported um, in their story of, you know, their creation. And, yeah, so there's a lot going on there. But my dad's turn is a beautiful man.
1: So you said, obviously, they'd had your sister as well. yeah. Yeah, so... I think
0: they knew what sex was by yeah, that stage. <laughs> Otherwise, they're a very slow <laughs> loan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but
1: so what was the... Like, that must have been... I can't even imagine what that was like then for them to go through it twice.
0: Yeah. So that's a massive thing. And, you know, like, with full respect to Suze and my sister and, and my father, so I can speak to it lightly and hopefully reverently from my side. But... um. There's a lot of study and there's a lot of understanding, especially through kinesiology, around, you know, kind of sufferance in utero as well. So the actual experience that I had as developing from that, like, supportive vessel that was holding and nurturing me as I was growing probably was less available to Sue's in her story because there was already the guilt and shame and they already knew, like, the end result. They wouldn't be able to keep it. Yeah, they'd already made that choice. So, you know, it was just a... Yeah, it's a radical thing. I, and six months after they had Suze, they actually got married. Wow. and They were married for 20 years. Holy smokes. And they didn't have another child. Yeah. Yeah, so they there was a lot of kind of dark trauma in their relationship. And my father had a definite sense of responsibility and obligation and also a sense of hope to have a family. And I think my mother also had that, but she couldn't cross the bridge again. And she, for whatever reason those two people couldn't create that for themselves to hold on to. And then in their late 40s, you know, when that childbirthing age was done, I think they realized their journey was over. Yeah, so it's a big one. Wow. Mm, mm. So, yeah, I can't, I can't, I mean, I can speak to it. I know that the thing that I know is that my mother actually never told her mother. So, you know, it was very complicit because a doctor wrote a birth, uh, sorry, a sickness that, certificate that um, for my mother, just as she was showing, to say she had glandular fever because she was at Teachers College and they said, oh, no, like, if you get seen doing this. So they managed to hustle her away and then get her out to, you know, deliver this baby and then do it a second time as well. And her parents were over in, you know, the kind of um, Gippsland region and they were none the wiser for those two times that she, from showing, which is probably like, say, four months, yeah, it's a massive, eh? Hey? It's a lot of darkness, a lot of shadow, for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: Just mm. like carrying that sort of mm.
0: feeling around with you. Yeah. I can't yeah. Even imagine. No, it's a big one, for sure. So, yeah, so it's lovely to discuss it. I'm happy to share it. And I think that, you know, it, it, it's really the journey of getting to know these things that are available that we can either be trapped in or be free of that I think creates a massive opportunity for us to live a happier life
1: and Mm. so what's been the evolution for you then Mm. because this has like almost come full circle for your work now hasn't
0: it yeah it has so for me i what i really found is i had to go about this in a really linear fashion so, some of the work I've been doing now is like, it's very hard to work on myself. It's like a knife trying to cut itself or a fire trying to light. You know, it's it's just like quite difficult. It can be done. So, I really went through things like really incrementally, like I stepped in and it was quite, it was more quantum when I went through that door, literally, and the world opened up more and I started to see things. But it was very linear prior. And I guess there was also... a quite a deep amount of trauma. So I had to, well, I didn't have to do anything, but I chose to go through the cycle of touching down on that trauma and coming out and touching down and coming out a little bit stronger each time. Whereas in the work that I'm offering now, it's its really the lenses that I was holding that was creating the story that kept the trauma. So, you know, when I was first in my relationship with my wife i did everything i could to prove that i wasn't worthy and that she would reject me like it's pretty toxic stuff and so you know fortunately and, and that
1: was a pattern that you'd been doing yeah, as a child as well
0: 100 percent. yeah yeah so it wasn't until i learned to let go of those stories that i'm not i'm not um rejected and i am worthwhile or even if i'm I mean, I know I am of worth, but it's that I'm not not worthwhile. You know, that's not a truth. It's just a story. And there's a whole range of other things I can be. And I'm now going to go and explore what they might be and tune into my values as a man. How how did Mm. you even begin that though? Because Mm. I can imagine
1: the stories that you're talking about, Mm. they they were created when you probably didn't even have language, if you know what I mean, from a very Mm. early age. And so... I imagine a lot of these stories or lenses were even like just unconscious.
0: I think they are all unconscious. That's the problem. That's why they're really hard to get to. Um, and that's really the work that I can do now because of experience and how some how training. Do you,
1: yeah, how do you sort of mine for those those gems? Well,
0: saying? it's literally it is in language, so it does come in. Um, it, you're right. Pre-language, it is in resonance or frequency or energy. So you know, my body, if you like, as it came out of the um, the womb the spine and the body would have been in like rigid shock as it wanted to. So I would have felt that separation. And then as I grew into the world and learned language, I would have found words to actually manifest that sense yeah, of to separation. tie
1: to that experience yeah, or yeah. feeling.
0: Yeah, so the resonance is in the body and then the language creates the framework or the structure. Wow. So when I, I can almost reverse engineer if, I, if I'm invited to, so I don't go around doing it uninvited, but... It, if I'm invited to I can listen to people's language and in their words I can hear um a lot around what their stories are and then I also channel and have some intuition and perception so yeah it's a bit of a blend but there's definitely a framework of um of 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 listening carefully to the language because that's really A manifestation of consciousness. And do you Mm. think
1: then that you said it's like a knife not able to cut a knife? Mm. That in itself, just by helping others, has really. Unearthed these feelings and experiences Mm. and and thoughts
0: for yourself. Yeah. So it's amazing. Now, almost each time I have a client and work with them, I see my own stuff. (laughs) (laughs) It's brilliant. So it's like I almost get like double bonus. (laughs) 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 So they get to heal and nurture. I, you know, yeah. So it's beautiful. I know I go, oh, well, that's interesting. I was just going through that this week. And thank you for showing that for me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's beautiful. Can
1: can you talk me through like an Mm. example of a process that you would? So yeah you would take a client through
0: that yeah, so for example um just try and think of something that's not too i I'll, I'll stay a bit more um general just out of courtesy and respect obviously to anyone I've worked with, so I'll stay quite broad but um what it is is um in uh okay i'll get yeah this will work there's a child and he's four and and he craves um, his connection to his father particularly at this age as he's starting to step in and realize that the world is more than him and as he steps into that world he wants the support of his father holding his hand and at the same time his father had a gambling addiction yep and but the beauty of this man is he had it and out of a commitment to his son he said I'm going to give up that addiction because I've managed to create some debt, I'm going to work an extra day a week and I'm going to pay off that debt and I'm going to nurture and be responsible for that which I've created. And you've got a son who's making a story up that I'm no longer wanted by my father and you've got a father who I love my son enough to move beyond my weaknesses and create a difference.
1: Wow, yeah, Mm. two mutually supportive stories but also mutually exclusive stories
0: well both both essentially the son's then grown up with the trauma that he's not wanted which isn't true and the father's doing his best as a man to be what his version of a man is and they're both valid but they create that particularly for the son a level of trauma so then but, no. the, but then that would be reflected mm. in the father as well, because obviously there's not mm. the connection not there. Not the connection, yeah. And
1: he's like, oh, I'm doing my best for my son here. Yeah.
0: So, to go a stage back, the father's learned that potentially from his father, who may have had a different reason for, you know, the version of being a man is to spend Service, less time. Yeah. yeah. To spend less time with my son and put my energy into work because that's what a man does in order to provide for that which he's created rather than just energetically support that which he's created, which are different things. I suppose when we move into our full sovereignty, we know that we can do it all. We can create the energetic provision and we can create the financial provision.
1: Yeah, it's not a zero-sum game.
0: It's just provision on all levels. Like, that's what... I'm here for it's yeah it doesn't water down it doesn't get isolated and,
1: and so how did you mm. unpack that then so was it mm. just through asking questions and just
0: yeah yeah so I mean it's a bit hard to explain I, I guess I've done a course with a guy called Peter Crone and that is amazing he's like I think the best person in the world at the moment doing this stuff And then from that it just sort of started to dial in. It took a while, like, for it to really sink in, but it was I always had the skills, I suppose, because of the stuff I've gone through. And
1: you're highly attuned to. Yeah. Yeah, draw, you'd, yeah. You'd been looking for this all
0: Yeah. Long. And then when I heard about it, I'm like, oh, this makes sense to me. And then... It was another doorway that you'd walked to: There it was. Yeah. So, <laughs> then I just took it. And yeah, so I took this course and it just really lined up for me. And I guess prior, I wasn't so benevolent in the usage of that. I wasn't always you know, malicious, but I could kind of see someone's weakness and say, you know, hold them at bay a bit or organize or coerce, which isn't healthy energy but it was something i had available so i could and that
1: that was just something you'd learned through
0: trial and error through being that chameleon when i was three yeah yeah you know like well what does this person need i can work it out and also where's this person's weakness i can work it out so i don't do that at all now i just more i'm like well here i am to help how can i help you transcend that thing which is holding you back and so when they talk to me about a story we literally go back to that four-year-old story yeah. And then in that, so it's very much like kinesiology, but it's just in consciousness. Right. So kinesiology works, as you know, like in the sense that they'll tap back and go, there's something at four, there's something at four, yep. Okay, there's something at three, yep. I don't and know. I actually, I don't
1: know. What's okay. the, when you say four and three, what does that mean?
0: Well, kinesiology will just literally tap back in consciousness to where the oh, trauma the holds in the yeah. age in the body. And the, like the work I've done will even go into neuter or past lives and other stuff. But, you know, it depends on the person and what their availability and consciousness is to that being impossible. But it, at minimum, you will go back to birth and quite likely in utero where a lot of trauma can be formed depending on the level of support in the system because you know it's like if you try to grow a carrot in ground and don't water it and all the rest it's going to come up pretty different shape to the one that is so yeah yeah it's very similar like you know once we connect to the reality of what we're actually creating so what, I, I do the same, but I say in language, when was the first sto- time you started feeling this story that, you know, I'm not worthy in the eyes of the masculine? And it's pretty pretty quick, man. They get they just tune back and the tears start coming and go, well, as you know, when my dad, when I was four, he started working a lot more. And, you know, and they find out often that the story for their dad was what it is that he was good enough to let go of his gambling addiction and work harder, but they hadn't let go of the story that wasn't serving them. Wow. Yeah, and once they do, they can see how and, they… Well, how do know, they
1: do that then? So, it's a mm, conversation with the father.
0: and It's sort of within the father of themselves. Right. So, if the father's passed and so forth. Oh, I gotcha. It can just be within the compassion and forgiveness for understanding the man who was doing what he thought was the best thing for him or the best thing at the time and then for the child it's going back and nurturing the child that was making sense of the world and trying to create protection really like I need to be guarded because I'm not supported and that sort of thing and then realize that that child is great but you now can come into the man into the world with the man and live with the man at 40 or 50 or however old that man is. And when he comes into that, the man has the capacity to dissolve that lens right. really by seeing that it's not true. So what I do is I then say to the man, where's the evidence for you in life now that says that you're not worthy? Does your wife think that? And they, they say, no, do your children think that? No, does your dog? Does, anyway. And they're all like, no. And I say, well, where does it exist? And they're like, oh, oh. In my head, <laughs> in my head, I go. Well, do you want? To, should we let go of it, and then we can just move through it and say, "I'm not not worthy. Like I'm not that. I might be a lot of other things, but I'm not that." And then we move. We use resonance and say, "Well, if you're not that, just using your kind of scale feel to what just kind of lights you up. I am worthy. I am loved." Is that true? Is there evidence? Yeah, there is. So there's actually evidence that you are loved. Yeah, there is. Oh, let's start playing with that and focusing on that because you might find that expands in the world. And yeah, that's how we go about it. Mm.
1: Wow. Mm. So how many people do you think actually need to go through
0: this type of work? (laughs) Uh, Everyone. (laughs) So why don't we? Uh, I don't know that. I think it's a bit of work. Yeah. Yeah, I think... um, you know, like I was listening to a really lovely podcast yesterday actually around someone who was a neuroscientist and, you know, it's quite popular at the moment talking about um, ayahuasca and psilocybin yeah. and all the rest. And exactly what she was talking about, the benefits, she was beautifully measured and she would only, she uses only microdose because she doesn't need to and not even that often because she can almost just feel the energy that's offered. Um her language was identical to mine in terms of the just going back. And all it does is just drops the stories. And then we just get to see life for what it is.
1: So do you think there's almost like a, would there be like an age that you think would be an optimal age to actually address and sort of mm. inventory these beliefs?
0: Yeah, probably <laughs> all. Um, so with the kids, it's easier. Because they just don't have, they just don't hold the trauma. They have built up the
1: the calcification around
0: the the beliefs.
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: Yeah, and with the 60-year-olds, it's bigger. But, you know, like I worked with a beautiful 60-year-old man the other week and it was amazing. But he was courageous. So courage is the bridge. Yeah. And, And that's the only thing. Like I'm, look, I'm quite an explorative person and, Ayahuasca is not something that I'm attracted to. If I was, I'd do it. And the reason why is because I've, I don't want to discourage anyone or, or encourage. It's like totally up to them. But what I feel like is it, the journey isn't potentially tangible enough to hold it in the body hard. So I've spoken to a few people and they get the awakening, but they might not get the know-how. Whereas this way, it has the same net effect, but you've, got you've earned it. Yeah, Yeah, you've done it. Yourself in consciousness. Wow. Yeah, yeah. It must, so be, it must be feel away. really
1: empowering as well when they realize that they can actually be yeah. a pilot of their own ship.
0: 100%. So I'm developing one other thing which is called um, the power of word and natural law, which essentially helps people. It's like an eight-hour course and it helps people... Um, take on their own responsibility for their self-authoring. Yeah. Yeah. So, they get to learn to listen to their language. They see the signals. So, they start to become the knife that can cut itself, which is really what I've developed in myself. Yeah. And I'm able to pass that on. It comes through listening to the words where they lay in terms of victimhood or creator. So, victimhood's like shouldn't have, should have, must, have to. Like, we really don't have to do anything. We really did what we did. But the, the should shows it's in the regret, shame, which is a very low frequency. So when we can change that to grateful for having the mistake, I'm grateful for the pain of my adoption. I, you can, it's true. Yeah. yeah, I, I'm really grateful and, and I'm joyful for all that it's shown me. It's very different. So what we can do is use a language to go, oh, okay, that's where the, that's where the lens is, that's where the story is. I'm going to start spending a bit of time around that.
1: So, do you think you could actually hack that? Not Mm. that you want to sort of short circuit this, but Mm. could you just do an inventory of your everyday language Mm. and notice what would be the keywords you'd look out for then? The shoulds? Yep. The have tos?
0: Yep. They're toxic. So, they're sort of almost acidic and they potentially lead to cancer. They're they're the
1: real victim words. Yeah, they are. Any others that springs to mind?
0: Yeah, like, um, as we say, I'll just reel through them, like, should must have to go to um the regret ones are like um should have could because you like the the irony about those are that, that like we energize something that's actually unattainably changeable in the past, yeah, and we actually like put pour, a lot of energy into yeah, it yeah well if we 're chi we literally pump our chi back to something that's a regret field yeah. like it's so toxic so or by learning and feeling and listening to it, we change it. Yeah. 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 And we can change it, but the change is in consciousness to say, oh, okay, I have a lot of regret about this thing. How do I get to transcend that? in yeah. language
1: and so is it a case of asking yourself the questions like you recognize that you say ah oh, i should have done that thing i i you know i, I keep saying should have should have should have mm. and and you recognize it and then go what language how can i reword that mm. so that it's no longer in a victim
0: yeah language? so when we move it moves in cycles it might even move to anger and then it might move into courage then it'll move into allowance and acceptance yeah, almost the, like,
1: the, like the grieving process.
0: Yeah, and love. Yeah, and then compassion for ourselves, and then some joy even for gratitude, which is like, oh, that was really good that yeah I got and to. So we we got to. So instead of it being have to, must, it moves into um we get to. Yeah, you know we choose to. Um, another one that came, which implies a bit of gratitude, is we're blessed to. So connection to source. Yeah, so we're blessed to be here. I don't have to be here with this podcast. That doesn't show a lot of any kind of (laughs) gratitude. Yeah. Um, But I actually love to be here. Yeah. It's a high level. But the start, start with get to. We're moving into choosing and then move into choose to, which is a bit more powerful. It's probably choose to, get to, love to, and then, you know, bless to, quite similar, just depending on whether you feel like it's a real blessing for you or not. Yeah. You know.
1: But essentially you could reframe everything 100%, 100%. in that language and what will
0: life be like then well it's amazing you know it's it's just beautiful because we get to be the authors of our own stories yeah so yeah it's the best thing
1: and yeah. you know you look at it's just for some reason makes me think of that that line by ross noble the comedian where mm. people are whinging in a an airport queue, like their flight's been delayed. And He's like, "Let's just put things in perspective, please, mm, people. We're, mm. we're flying through the sky, in a, <laughs> sitting on a chair in a silver box. Like, it's yeah, yeah. pretty amazing. And, yeah, and yeah, when, lovely. You, when you look around, like yeah. life, like it's pretty amazing. Yeah, <laughs> like, I agree. There is so much. Like every little thing that we can perceive and yeah. and and read as a niggle or a yeah. buggerance or yeah. something." It's pretty amazing when yeah. you imagine that we're like this little speck on a yeah. rock flying through the gullet, you know. Yeah,
0: yeah. So, in that scenario, like quite consciously to be like the victim would say, oh, I have to stay here another hour. It's like I get to stay here another hour. Yeah. I'll race you up and down the, you know. The, <laughs> the thing. Yeah. 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 You know, first to the end. I'll breathe
1: this fresh air,
0: you know, whatever. (laughs) I'll do whatever. I'll watch the planes. I'll, you know, read a book. I get to do all these things or I choose to. Yeah, that's a classic, isn't it? I I actually love, because I've done loads of traveling, I love to lie down just by the window, you know, and I love it. I love it. So, yeah, I'm I'm good with that. I, I used to do that all the time. Yeah.
1: And, and it used to, I used to love the fact that people would look on as yeah. if you're a weirdo. Yeah. But I'm, then after about 15 minutes, there'd be two or three other people. <laughs> so, it. so I, it's like you gave permission to everyone. Yeah, we like, did. Everyone wanted to be lying down. Yeah, yeah. Because everyone's knackered. <laughs>
0: totally. Yeah. And it's a nice place to lie down. It's really yeah. exotic. Like, yeah. there's all these amazing feats of engineering going on all around. And Yeah. It's all good.
1: Wow. So yeah. I, I love this process. So where do you see, Where's what's the future in this? Like what mm. what do you see in the near future if, if more and more people embrace this way mm. of viewing and breaking down these non-useful stories mm, yeah. and turning them into useful stories?
0: Yeah, beautiful. Well, essentially a lot more internal authority. And I, I, I'm... I really feel when I look at people in the planet, um, that there's predominantly operating out of love. You know, when I I remember after lockdown, I went and it was just in here in Torquay one day, and it was the, the first fine day, and there was just literally people doing their own thing in so many different manifestations, but their intention was love. So. I feel like once we can author our own stories more clearly, we will create more beautiful things because we, as humans, we operate out of love most do, of the time. So. Do you think it's, mm.
1: it makes me think though, do you think the natural default is to assume the worst though? It's almost like the it, it, we've evolved to presume the worst because that in the old days that would have protected us like, you know, don't eat those berries because they could make you sick and you die. Yeah. And so we've had that natural default like lent the wrong way, whereas if mm. we can just flip the switch back, yeah, into that yeah. gratitude zone, yeah, it it can be almost like a catalyst for,
0: yeah. So I totally agree. So I actually personally feel like that's our evolution in consciousness. So it's the primal drivers. So the you know um, insecurity, um, fear,
1: fitting in, uh, and-
0: inadequacy, which is fitting in. Yeah. So I'm not I'm not loved. I'm not approved of. So I go, on. which is if. If you're cast out by the tribe, you're going to get it by the lion. First one, you're going to be get eaten by the lion. Second one is if you're not approved by the tribe, you're going to be eaten by the lion. Third one, scarcity. So insecurity, inadequacy, and scarcity. Now those primal drivers have perfect function if we live in you know the wild forest with wolves and lions outside the door. I know those two don't coexist, but they you know in theory <laughs> they do. So essentially nowadays we don't have wolves or lions, but we still live like it. Yeah, And I would offer that there's certain controllers that offer stories that actually trigger those primal drivers. But what we're starting to do, because if we look, we'll find evidence for it everywhere. Ah, Look at media. Look at everything, everywhere, anything. So if I want to see something to be scared of, it's more available than ever. If I want to see something that shows my level of inadequacy and lack of approval, I'll find it everywhere. And if I wish to show that there's a lack of something, I can find it everywhere so what the beauty of that is that now we actually get to see if we've got the courage that's not authentic it's not real and then we get to transcend that in consciousness for the first time because all we need to do is have the courage to step beyond that and actually say what happens what else is available and what else is available instead of the opportunity of say it not working out which is scarcity that is one of the possibilities but in the spectrum of infinite possibility There's every other possibility that's available. So why focus on the scarcity one? Yeah, yeah. Like every other one, like it's going to work out. Yeah, sure. That's the other end of the spectrum or it might work out the fifth time. You know, where's that in their stories? Like, it's going to work out the seventh time. I'm going to get a little bit better by failing. I'm going to apply those lessons and go again. I'm going to meet someone I never met because I've stepped in and allowed, like, the benevolent to become involved. And there's this amazing coincidence. you like, put yourself out there. Yeah. And in that, we get met with all these amazing coincidences. Yeah. And I really feel that moves from linear, which is like one opportunity, which is not going to work out, to literally quantum, which is... It, there's just a total realm. So, what are we going to author? How are we going to create it? Bring the stories back into ourselves. Listen to our language. Create beautiful language around it, and move on. Yeah,
1: it, it reminds me of Stephen Pressfield's book, The War of Art. Okay, and and he talks about the you know, fighting the resistance, you know, when you're trying to create art, Mm -hmm. whether it's you're a writer or whatever, you're, you're constantly, every day you have to battle resistance. You have to sort of Mm -hmm. defeat that demon that, you know, that dragon, slay that dragon so Mm -hmm. that you, you do the work. But if we, if you just turn pro, you show up in the world every day, you show up as if the muse is going to hand you gifts of Mm. like art and you're just purely by taking control, and I can show up and do the work every day, and just expecting that at some stage, it's going to actually become fruitful. Mm. You get the the right to your, the labor, but you don't get the right to the fruits of your labor, so to speak. So you can control the labor. That's the one thing you can control. You can show up and do the work every day, day in, day out. You, you can't necessarily control what's going to come from that, but as long as you're embracing the process, you... And it sounds like when we're creating mm. these stories, we mm. we rewire these stories, and mm. it's almost like we're expecting the best. We just don't know when it's going to come, but we know it's going to come at some mm. stage.
0: Well, I would also offer that um, in when we're holding a frequency that's like a lot less than those, a lot more broad than those um, primal drivers. So you know, insecurity, like I'm in danger. It's such a narrow band of opportunity that we get to see the world through. So when we broaden that into a much bigger band and then actually decide to let go of that story of like, I know, I, I do actually know people who think they're unsafe, like, and it's not, it's not going to work out. They're going to get hurt. In most situations, I've actually met people like that. That's a horrific way wow. to actually be, yeah. like, which is anxiety.
1: Well, you can imagine like your adrenal glands just don't. Oh. Defcon Five. Yeah,
0: the toll on the body, and you know the, um, just the, um, yeah, the burden is immense. And and what what I'd offer to those people is that if they can see that as a story, that they've created through something earlier in life and they can dissolve it, then they can move into a much broader spectrum of what's available, which is essentially anything. I I actually, what I'd love to touch on is it's the uncertainty. So at the moment, I think that's really what the precipice is. We have been, I would offer, we've been um, fooled that to think that uncertainty means unsafe. Yeah. Now, uncertainty is the nature of life <laughs> yeah. no one, you can plan it Nothing all you like certain. you don't know what's <laughs> happening tomorrow we can yeah. plan it all day and we do not know yeah so, so you
1: think we've been fooled into believing that if we do plan a plan will work
0: well to take full responsibility as a creator is that we've been offered that story by someone that uncertainty means unsafe and i've accepted it yeah Okay, so fool means like I'm a victim, right? Someone's gone and bent me over. No, no. I've been offered that story and I accept it. Well, my story is uh, uncertainty is the nature of life. It's been quite modern that we've been told that uncertainty is unsafe. Like there were people sailing all around the world with no guarantees. I can guarantee you everything was uncertain. (laughs) Yeah. The whole time, yeah. not long ago, there were people moving into, you know, going to set up their first home in pioneering and, you know, there was well, no... Well, you have to
1: move on from the village when it reached a certain size, now you got given the coals, gone, off you go. Off
0: you go. Yeah. So, there was uncertainty it was much more natural and just I say, quite recently, maybe in the last hundred years, it's become um, it's unsafe. So, let's move it incrementally, a bit like the get, you know, get to, choose to, love to... Who we'll move uncertainty is unsafe to certainty is uncomfortable. Then the next shift down is certainty is unfamiliar because it's not at the moment, but it really is. Then we accept that that's a lie. That is just a total lie. Uncertainty is familiar, but I'm not yet comfortable with it. But I know it's everywhere. Okay, so we're starting to see it. And then we go to uncertainty is familiar, and I'm comfortable with it. It's my natural way of being. And then we move to uncertainty is exciting.
1: Yeah, embrace it.
0: Yeah. And okay. we never know what's gonna happen. And I meet my sister and I meet my dad and meet my wife and I live in amazing places and But what kind of wonderful mm. language would it be to have as a parent? Mm. How do we how would
1: you nurture mm. that at the breakfast table with your children?
0: Just in language the
1: whole time. So, what would it look like? What does, you, what does your breakfast look like? What <laughs> would you, no, maybe. Not. So, what language would you say? Like, okay, what what amazing uncertainty are we going to come across today? What are we uncertain about today? What would you, what do you think would be a way that we could?
0: I think it's. I think it's uh, for kids. Their natural ways that there is uncertainty, and then the schooling and all the rest sort of you know conditions them into a, a level of creating. A certainty which is false hmm. so certainty doesn't exist but you know we try to corral ourselves now our opportunities so that we try to create a level of certainty and that's okay but not at the cost of the natural law which is uncertainty right and not at the cost of embracing what's available in the in the realm of uncertainty which is so broad that literally that if we're not looking for it we're not seeing that opportunity yeah that's the real difference the filters are completely closed yeah so I would say because I do have a con, a, like a, a connection with source. So for me, it's like we're actually saying to source consciousness or source. Wait, what do you mean by that? Like th- there's a benevolent force that we're all a part of, and we get to express that in a unique way once we come fully lit up. You know, so there's seven billion different expressions of the one. That's how I feel about consciousness, and and as we switch online, we're able to. Light up and allow the world to be the way it should be, which is like essentially evolving in seven different different directions at once, which is exponential rather so than linear. Do you, mm. do you
1: mean we're almost like a conduit for that, for the source to manifest things in the world? So it's almost like if we open ourselves up, we we open the throttle, yeah, and and open up to creation, creating.
0: Well, yeah, that's what I feel like free will is. So the source consciousness, in order to evolve gave us free will, and then we accept through contracts and offers of comfort and insecurity to be corralled through a very linear line and there's not as much evolution because we've all become homogenized. But once we choose to create our own story, which is in line with our own values, times 7 billion, then it moves from one homogenized story into seven billion essentially infinite potential stories and then that's when quantum kicks in and that's the opportunity i feel at the moment the the more of us that can let go of the lenses the more of us are going to open up and,
1: and it must have you feel a, it yeah it, it, it must be like you, you imagine a group of people mm. and one of them starts this yeah this sort of uh, opens their eyes yeah. so to speak mm-hmm. mm. it wouldn't take long to propagate Mm. When people start picking up on the vibes. I mean, it's like, there's something about this person yeah. that just rocks. And, yeah. And then they find out, they're like, oh my gosh. And so, you can imagine you get a group of people like that. Mm. And I don't know whether, the, I imagine some people would fight it tooth and nail. Maybe. But, I don't
0: know. But, mm. you know, it's exciting to think that yeah. people can get
1: excited about being excited.
0: Oh, well, for me, that's the resonance. So... There would, there is something very special and attractive around someone that we can see that is like aware of those primal drivers. Has let them go and start to move in connection with source. And you can pick it in my life. Someone walks into a room, see they've got a the presence. Place. Yeah, but it's not
1: a an
0: egotistical. It's not pretense. Yeah, no. that's
1: right. Yeah, it's just a there's something... Yeah, you, you, I, I yeah, I can't even think energy. of the words.
0: Yeah, it's and it's super attractive, and it's also. Um, uh, what's the other word for attractive? When something just like connects on, it's like it catches and it yeah. does spread. So, for me, I think this is the thing that's starting, and yeah, it's super exciting, and and that's where I feel the potential is in this. So, this my offer in terms of helping people is simply to help them get to that place more quickly, um, without having to go through a whole lot of linear pain, because we will just stay in the same groundhog if we keep attached to those primal drivers. Yeah. and are unaware. Once we become unaware, we can choose not to, to see them, but to let them go and transcend them. And then where I was before, which is around the expression is, we're actually saying to God or universe or whatever that word is for us, um, I'm not safe or, or there's not enough or I'm inadequate. The source would say, what do you mean? <laughs> there's everything everywhere all the time you're perfectly safe that's why you're there if you weren't i would have flicked you off already and inadequate well you're part of me so <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's quite insulting so you're not necessarily <laughs> going to meet <laughs> the, the the consciousness the, yeah. the higher source of consciousness with those lenses yeah. we'll stay in a narrow corral you, the benevolence not going to meet us in those corrals cuz we're actually denying god yeah when we move into the wider spectrum and say i don't know but that's the nature of life, but I'm stepping in because I know there is abundance, so the antithesis to scarcity, I know I am enough and of value because I'm of God, and I know that um, I am safe because I'm here. If I wasn't, I wouldn't be. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So once we step into that, then we find that the benevolent force meets us because we're wide enough open not to deny it. And then it's like, ah, I meet you. That person turns up. This phone call comes from nowhere, you know, and it does. (laughs) But if we're so controlled and narrow, it never does. We never see it. But once we open up and then life just moves quantum, once we open up, that phone call leads to someone who passes you on to someone. You meet the wife of your dreams or the husband of your dreams or the partner and, you know, there's connection and there's creation and opportunities. So, yeah, that's how I feel about all of that. Mm. that's awesome oh, thank you that's yeah. <laughs> good fun <laughs> well well jason this has been a wild ride yeah good yeah. i really
1: i love the fact that i got to sit down and have this chat with you yeah i loved it too mate and um thank you can't wait for more chats
0: yeah great lovely yeah <laughs> thank you so much yeah thanks man it's been uncertain <laughs> <laughs> but let's embrace it yeah love you man thank <laughs> love you. you too.
1: well thanks for listening if you're interested in reading more about Jason's work, I'll put links in the show notes at thedadmindset.com. Before we go, if you're in Australia and looking for a way to better manage how your kids deal with pocket money and spending, I can't recommend Spriggy enough. If you'd like to give it a go, it's usually $30 to get a card for each child. But if you click the link on this week's episode in the show notes or go to thedadmindset.com forward slash useful stuff, all one word, you can get $20 back when you sign up. If this episode has resonated with you and you haven't already, the thing that you can do to help the most is subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify. Sharing the show or your favorite episode with friends is, of course, awesome, and really helpful. Well, that's about all from me for now. Hope you have a great week, and as always, enjoy your caffeinated beverage.